I want to think with you about ceremony. Uh, tonight, I have uh, I've given some thought to uh, ceremonies that have influenced my own life and given it direction and purpose, and I, 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 at some point, would love to know about yours, what those ceremonies have been that have formed you and fashioned you. It might, might have been a, a graduation. It might have been when you were awarded your Ph.D., for a friend of mine, he had a little ceremony in which he um, burned all of his loan paperwork after he finished paying off his debt. It might have been when you were uh, when you got married, or maybe when you cut an umbilical cord, or when you closed on a house. But some ceremony that gave shape uh, to your own life. Some ceremonies are very important, and others seem important, but in fact are not. Uh, Jim Carrey, the comedian and actor, uh, gave a speech at the last Golden Globes that made some headlines. This is from 2016. Uh, Jim Carrey rose to the stage and said, Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey getting some well-deserved shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner and actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true, and I could stop all this, this terrible search for what I know would not fulfill me. These awards are important, right? I mean, if you blew up our solar system, you wouldn't be able to find any human history with the naked eye, but from our perspective, this is huge. <laughs> Jim Carrey beautifully illustrated the fact that some ceremonies promise a great deal, but don't offer very much. Tonight, we are reading a passage from St. Luke's Gospel, a very brief passage, one that is almost always overlooked, uh, because it's what I call a high-context passage in Scripture. Uh, some passages from Scripture have a relatively obvious meaning that is uh, communicated uh, pretty easily to uh, even a casual reader of the text, and other passages require a lot of work, a lot of context needs to be known before you can really plumb the depths of a given passage, some given passages, and this happens to be one of those uh, passages. But let me say that Scripture is one of those things where if it takes work to understand it, it's probably worth the work. And tonight we're going to have to work a little bit to understand what it means, but I think when we get there we'll be happy that we've arrived. And in Luke chapter 2 we read of two what could be called otherworldly ceremonies, because we often don't perform them. Uh, one is for Mary, and the other is for the infant Jesus. Uh, Judaism was not a religion of cynicism or nihilism, thinking that the world is either banal or awful, and that's the end of the story. Instead, in Judaism, you had these ceremonies which set objects or at times people apart for particularly holy uh, uses. And, uh, and these people or these um, entities or these structures were to be lights, lights that would show us that God is still very, very active in the world. 
And so sometimes people were set aside as reminders of sacredness or God's presence or intention in the world, and that's what's happening in part here in our text. We have a journey to Jerusalem, which involved uh, two ceremonies closely associated, probably happened a few minutes uh, apart. The first ceremony is the purification of Mary. The second ceremony is the consecration of Jesus. So I'm going to divide it and talk about those two ceremonies. But this is the passage. Let me read it again. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it was written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two uh, young pigeons. Now, before I parse this out with the two ceremonies, let me say this. You notice that the word law is mentioned three times, and then there are two citations uh, from that same law, the Old Testament, particularly Leviticus. And And just as a side comment, before we get to these two consecratory rites or these two religious rites, I have to say that What this is indicating to us is that you really can't understand Jesus and his own thinking, his own uh, beliefs, uh, his, his own emphases without understanding his background. And his background was the Old Testament, uh, the world of the Old Testament. This is the literature that he read, that he took seriously, that he was formed by. And, and so after that little side comment, we'll move on. The purification of Mary. The text says, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, okay, I'm going to stop there. Um, you notice it says there and not her. We're not sure why, because it was really her purification. And, but the whole family attended the ceremony, so maybe Luke was just using that word uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a broad way that the whole family was involved, but Mary was certainly the focus of this rite of purification. Now, why on earth would she need purification? Well, the Old Testament law said that a woman who had given birth to a child would be ceremonially unclean for seven days. Uh, And after that seven-day period, she would undergo a public rite of purification. Now, she was ceremonially unclean for seven days. Now, what on earth does that mean? What does it mean to be unclean? Let me say this, it is not necessarily linked to issues of morality. It has mostly to do with issues of health. It means that you, as an unclean person, are somehow contaminated or tainted or weakened or not at your full strength, which uh, is caused by one of two things most often. In the Old Testament, two primary causes for uncleanness. The first is the body itself. When the body itself has um, an illness or an ailment, when the body itself has some sort of discharge or there's a blood-related issue, or when you have a baby and you're in a weakened state, uh, the body itself is considered uh, to be in a place of uncleanness. This can also be related to matters of diet as well. Uh, If you eat animals that are considered by the Old Testament to be impure or unclean or disordered, you yourself become unclean. And the result of being unclean is distance, distance between you and other people, and particularly distance between you and the religious uh, body, the worshiping community. There's distance there. I once saw this uh, in a a miniature fashion when I was hospital chaplain. Uh, I was sent to a man who had requested Holy Communion 
but he was a he was a gentleman whose hospital door was covered with yellow signs, and that was always bad. If your door was covered with yellow signs, it, mean, it meant, at least at that time, and in that wing of the hospital, that you had a highly contagious ailment, and people needed to be well-prepped before they visited you. And so before I went to see this man who had some airborne um, virus that was terribly contagious, I had to put on goggles and a mask and something to cover my head, and cover all of my clothes. In fact, the gloves that I had to put on uh, came up to the elbow, and I, I was entirely covered, entirely covered, as I was giving Holy Communion to a man who was also entirely covered. And there was this, even though there was an exchange of bread and wine, there was this incredible distance between the two of us because he was, at least medically speaking, unclean. There was a world between us, a world of plastic between us. Now, why on earth would the Old Testament have such a system? Not based on morality, but based on uh, uh, health issues related to your body and your diet. Why? Um, because intrinsic to Judaism was the idea of being set apart from what were regarded as unclean practices of other surrounding nations. And by keeping, uh, keeping clean... Uh, through body and through diet and through things like the right kind of fabric and, and uh, working only certain uh, days of the week and things like that, the Jews would be a visible parable to the world that they were distinct. In other words, they weren't just to be distinct in ideology or thinking. They were to demonstrate their difference in public ways so that they would be public parables for the rest of the world to see that Israel is a nation set apart and distinct. Uh, and, um, and so they were, in some ways, representing the God who was set apart, wholly other, and distinct. But the law not only diagnosed uncleanness, the things that caused uncleanness, it also offered a cure, if you will, from uncleanness, a rite of purification. Uh, so uh, a woman who experienced childbirth would have to go to this go forward for this rite of purification, and they were to offer a sacrifice in, to the priest in order that they might be considered clean. What's interesting about the Old Testament, it gives you an out if you're a poor person. The sacrifice doesn't cost as much, and you only have to offer birds instead of the, of the, uh, the lamb. And, why, and what's interesting about this passage is that Mary chose the poorer option, so we know that Jesus was uh, born into a family that was a struggling family. And so Mary offers the, um, the sacrifice of purification and was therefore regarded as clean. Now, why am I talking about all of this? Why am I talking about cleanness and uncleanness, about the Virgin Mary going to, forward for this ritual? Well, the lesson here is an important one, even if it, if it seems a little distant from us. It's that Jesus' family um, did not exempt themselves or Jesus from the law. That just because he was the Son of God did not mean that he considered equality with God something to be grasped to the point where he wouldn't humble himself and become obedient, in this case, to Torah, to the law. Uh, St. Paul tells us that Jesus was born under the law in order to redeem those who were under the law. And, you know, Jesus would grow to interact with this whole concept of cleanness and uncleanness. Uh, Jesus himself would act as an agent of purification. 
he would bypass the temple and the sacrifices altogether and would go to people who were not able to worship in public because they had a terrible skin disease that everybody was afraid of catching, or a woman who, uh, who had an issue of blood and she spent all her money on doctors and surgeons that couldn't help her and she wasn't able to go to worship for 18 years, wasn't able to connect with her community, was functionally excised uh, from the stream of life for that long. And Jesus would go to these people and rescue them from their impurity and make them clean by touching them. And so he himself became an agent of purification, but he also redefined the whole notion of uncleanness because Jesus saw beyond the visual parable and said it isn't really at the end of the day about shellfish, you know? I mean, it's not really at the end of the day about having an imperfect body or something that doesn't work right. Real uncleanness comes from the soiled condition of the heart, and that's a universal problem. That isn't just true of certain women or certain men on certain days. It's true of everybody. And so Jesus would interact with the system later on, but until that interaction, uh, his family entered into the traditional covenant of the law given to Israel. So we have Mary's purification. But we also have something else in this passage, which is Jesus' own consecration. I find this relatively fascinating. They, this is what the text says in verse 22. They brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. A ceremony of consecration, of dedication. Uh, again, Israel was called to be a holy and distinct people set apart. Uh, and in this case, uh, the Jews thought it was incredibly important to give a visual, visual parable to the world by saying, we're going to dedicate our children, that is, from nearly their born and cry, we're going to dedicate them to God. Because we believe that life is not about Yale. Life is not about a, a book. Life is not about finally um, uh, getting your ideas across. Life is not about your family, not ultimately, though that's important. And life is not about which church you attend. Life is ultimately about God. That's the, the center of everything. And so they did this very bold thing by uh, consecrating their newborn children to God, to the highest possible purpose and personality. And this setting apart uh, was fascinating because while everyone under Abraham was part of that covenant, uh, there was a special setting aside or setting apart of the firstborn. Now, what is that about? Don't you, don't you resent that if you're not firstborn? I mean, what, what, they get everything, don't they? I mean, the firstborn children, they get everything. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's funny. When I went to seminary, they did a, a, a test of all seminarians across denominational and theological lines. It was called a study of generations. And they discovered that 80% of seminarians are firstborn children. <laughs> now, I don't know what that says about us. But nevertheless, um, probably not, it's probably not good. But, um, but why the firstborn? There's a very good reason. And the reason comes from one of the oldest commandments in the whole Bible. Uh, this uh, commandment to consecrate the firstborn is, is from Exodus uh, 12 and 13. Now, here's the thing. Uh, this consecration of the firstborn in the book of Exodus comes after the 10th plague in Egypt. You remember when God uh, executed judgment against the Egyptians and the gods of the Egyptians? He, uh, he sent um, this... Uh, really this death curse against the firstborn of the Egyptians and they uh, and those who didn't have the blood of the lamb 
on the doorposts and lintels of their homes, the, the, uh, the, the death angel would come and, and take away the life of the firstborn children, uh, for anybody who didn't have that mark. Um, and we have in, um, at the end of this passage that was read tonight, after the commissioning of the firstborn, we have the exodus where everybody leaves Egypt. So we have something right after the tenth plague and yet before the liberating exodus. And what I want to say is simply this consecration of the firstborn was a sign to Israel that God was going to reverse course for them. In other words, he was saying to Israel, I'm not going to punish you, and I'm not going to take away your firstborn. Instead, your firstborn are going to experience nothing but my favor, nothing but my life. Um, This ceremony, therefore, would be the setting aside... um, not for death, but for life, not for God's displeasure, but for his favor, so that every time you looked at your firstborn son, you could remember that we are a free people who have been spared from demise. Firstborn sons, in other words, who were consecrated, became a living, breathing, public parable of redemption, of grace, of being spared. So here we have, this is fascinating, right? The infant Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord of life, uh, the incarnate Word, Uh, coming in to save the cosmos, he is consecrated to God. And Jesus, in that moment, becomes a visual reminder for his family and his country that God saves people from judgment and death. As we know, uh, this action in Jesus would be fully fleshed out later in his life when he would become not only the Passover son, but the Passover lamb. Uh, But we see here again Jesus who is entering into the old covenant of the law. So we have a law related to purification and one related to consecration. That's what the second chapter of Luke's Gospel is all about, two important ceremonies in Judaism, purification, consecration. In these few verses from Luke's Gospel, we see a Jesus who humbly enters into the law and who became, in truth, the only consecrated Jewish male to live a fully consecrated life. Everyone else who was consecrated couldn't live up to the consecration. The the law can reveal what's wrong in you, but it can't help you to be right. It can't get you where you need to go. If it could, Jesus would never have had to come. Uh, But Jesus was that man, the Israelite in whom there was no guile. And he was the only one who could enter into that law, do it, and fulfill it, and thereby set us free from it, which is what he did. And so this is our high context passage, two ancient ceremonies with depth and meaning and importance. So how do we enter? How do we enter this story, this ceremony of consecration? It, it is happening under another covenant of which we're not a part and in a, an ancient part of the world and with customs and regulations and rituals that we're not used to. So how do we as uh, 21st century believers uh, come close to this? I think, it's, I think this is how. I think we can remember that something similar happened to us, that it came in a different form. We too have been consecrated, you know, in holy baptism. Baptism is, in part, uh, a consecrative act that by God's mercy we have been washed and set aside, 
set as distinctive, uh, set apart for God himself. Romans 6 talks about this in a beautiful way. It talks about our consecrated state before God. This is what it says. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that we too might walk in newness of life. And then he, later he says in the same chapter, do not present your members, parts of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The idea is that baptism into Christ's death and into his resurrection gives us a whole new way of understanding our own relationship to God, because we are no longer strangers and foreigners, but we have been consecrated, brought near, and dedicated to uh, to the Lord. Um, this, uh, this reality of shifting from death to life, from moving into a place of consecration, uh, was made known to me in the story of uh, St. Mary of Egypt, Maybe some of you have heard of her. She's a little-known saint who is celebrated by most liturgical traditions. But she grew up in Alexandria and uh, moved to the middle portion of Egypt and then, um, and then moved for a while uh, to Jerusalem. And she, uh, she was a young woman who was, let's say, complicated and had a lot of tumult in her early life and decided to cope with that tumult through promiscuity, lots of promiscuity. In fact, uh, she, uh, she discovered that she could be especially promiscuous with pilgrims who were on their way to the Holy Land. That's why she moved to Jerusalem. But she was uh, once attempting to seduce the priest at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, where Jesus was said to have risen again from the dead. And she found herself about to go into the church, and she was somehow spiritually prevented from entering. And the only way she could get in was to confess before the door of the church of the Holy Sepulchre that she was not worthy to enter and that her life had been uh, nothing um, but a mess and an unclean mess at that. If she were to enter that way, she would be a forgiven person. And so that's what she did. Uh, she collapsed. She went into the church, was baptized, was communed, was converted, and spent the rest of her life as a consecrated woman before God, uh, using uh, her passions uh, not for things earthly, but as a powerful intercessor uh, who was the inspiration for men like Antony and others, a woman who actually, through her uh, prayers may have changed the course of uh, of Christianity in Egypt and Ethiopia, and so this is a this is a person who presented herself at her baptism as an instrument for righteousness, be, being brought from uncleanness to cleanness through Jesus. And th- this is really good news if we think about it that you're not your own. That in the gospel you're given to God, you're consecrated to God. And that everything about us, from our head to our toes, can have a new dignity and a new direction. And that we don't have to live the, uh, the deranged life. But actually, there's something much better for us. And so, 
our mouths can be consecrated. You know, they can be veritable fountains of positive gossip. For those of you who struggle with gossip, I don't, I suggest, I don't think you should quit. I just think you should change the direction. You could make it positive. You could start boasting about all the great things uh, in, in the people around you. You could talk about those instead. You know, hands can be consecrated. You can learn not to steal or to hurt, uh, but to care and to protect. Houses, apartments, places we live can be consecrated and places of warmth and hospitality to those who don't have family and don't have friends, and there are more people like that than you think. Uh, spare time can be consecrated. You can be, in this type A crazy community in which we live, you could be a living witness of rest and relaxation. Wouldn't that be great? Instead of frenetic madness, you could do that. Uh, sleepless nights can be consecrated. You can spend that time not consumed by Netflix marathons, though on occasion I recommend them. But you could really pray for your neighbors. You could pray for people in your house. You could pray for people in your life uh, who aren't yet in a place of living faith. A silence can be consecrated. You can use your innate quietness uh, to listen to the hurts of other people without burdening them uh, with cheap advice. Money can be consecrated. Instead of hoarding it out of fear, you can start giving it away uh, to people in need, to the church. Uh, your job can be consecrated. You know, it can be more than putting out fires and managing schedules. It can be a, uh, it, it can be a, a fountainhead of honesty and charity not just for your company, but for the community. And so I just encourage you in the beginning of this new year to get a little dreamy and ask what, what it would look like if another aspect of your life could realize its full consecration. Because you and I, we are not just two-time Golden Globe winners, you know. We don't, it's not just about the collection of trophies and ceremonies that don't have ultimate value. You are more. You are a consecrated vessel for heaven. And since you are the recipient of a wild and free grace that comes from God and you never have to earn his love at all, uh, now that you don't have to do anything to earn it, my question to you is, well, what do you want to do as a result? What would you like to do? What do you want to give away? What would you like to become? And how might the world be different because of your own beautifully consecrated soul. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.